what you're about to hear is not a normal episode. Back in August, I recorded a sort of audio time capsule, and I was planning on leaving it metaphorically buried for a few years. But instead, I'm releasing it now. I'm going to give you guys a little peek behind the curtain. See, I really try to release at least one episode per month, but that isn't always easy. Sometimes I'll invest a lot of time into a story that just kind of falls apart or doesn't work for various reasons, and that's been happening a bit lately. But I didn't want to keep you guys hanging, so I'm digging up the time capsule a bit earlier than I'd anticipated, so here it goes. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hi everybody, Liam here. I've lived in the same place for the last 10 years, longer than I've lived anywhere else in my entire life. It's a two-story house that's been divided up into two units, and I live, or I lived in the, the upper apartment. Today, actually like about an hour or two from now, I'm turning over the keys to my landlord and moving across town to the other side of Oakland. Uh, the reason you hear kind of an echo right now in my voice is because I'm recording this in my empty bedroom. And there's, a, there's nothing in here to muffle the sound. Anyway, I've been feeling pretty emotional about everything, so I decided to write down some thoughts about what it's been like to watch this neighborhood change over the past decade. And that's today's episode. Sometimes it's easy to forget that the little details of life, the day-to-day stuff, we literally see out our windows. That's, that's history, too. And I don't know, I just wanted to create this little snapshot of one particular slice of Oakland. So if someone 10 years or 50 years or 250 years from now wants to get a feel for what it was like to live around here uh, in the 2010s, this <laughs> random collection of memories will be here to give them a small glimpse of this bizarre, unique, confusing, tumultuous world. Hi, future person. I hope you find this enlightening. And I also hope that Oakland isn't underwater. Okay, here's the show. My living room looks directly down onto Telegraph Avenue. Since the windows are single pane and only about 20 feet above the sidewalk, it's not just that I see and hear everything happening on the street, but I smell it too. What's ironic is that I used to smell weed a lot more before marijuana was legalized. The teenagers who used to hang out on the corner moved somewhere else years ago. My living room is also my office, so I've spent countless hours at a desk with one of Oakland's main arteries as its backdrop. The drab medical buildings across the street aren't very exciting to look at, but at least there are plenty of trees that partially block them. 
There's also the constant stream of people, giggling groups of high schoolers, homeless men and women pushing shopping carts, Muslim families walking to and from the mosque, thrift store hipsters on 10 speeds. Even though I don't watch local TV news, this view keeps me connected with what's going on. The street sounds reach my bedroom too, and I've been awakened by many, many late night arguments. Sometimes these disputes are between two people, sometimes it's just one person arguing with themselves. My usual response is just to put a pillow over my head and fall back asleep. But if it sounds like someone's in danger, I'll jump out of bed, run down the hall, pull back the living room curtain, turn on the light, you know, check on the situation. One night, I woke up to the sounds of screaming and clattering. I rushed to the window just in time to see a man running full speed right down the middle of the street. It was around 3 a.m. Traffic is light, only one or two cars every minute or so. A few seconds after the first man, two other guys followed in pursuit. After all three of them passed beyond my line of vision when I couldn't see them anymore, I heard more screaming and clattering noises in the direction they'd run. Then, a second later, I saw the two guys who were chasing the dude running as fast as they could back the other way, the direction they'd come from. And a few seconds later, the guy who was being chased originally, now he was the chaser and he was swinging this giant piece of wood with a sharp splintered end that he must have picked up on the street somewhere. It was huge, like seven feet long. And they just kept running down Telegraph until I couldn't hear them anymore. I don't feel good about, you know, ignoring or usually ignoring this kind of drama, but it, it never stops. In addition to the screaming and fighting, I've heard people crying more times than I can count, and moaning and whimpering and howling and retching and making noises that I didn't even think could come out of a human being. And just as often I've heard happy noises, laughing, giggling, singing, whooping, celebrating, uh, and lots of bass, just really, really loud window rattling bass, not only from car stereos, but also from the sound systems that people you know, mount on their bicycles. The stretch of telegraph that I've lived on for the past decade is easy to overlook if you're just passing through. It's about halfway between Temescal and Uptown, two districts that in normal times are bustling with the liveliness of advanced gentrification. Instead of the trendy bars and galleries and restaurants and boutiques that sandwich my neighborhood on either side, this little stretch of telegraph is pretty unhip. The few small restaurants in this area don't even have Instagram accounts. The neighborhood doesn't even really have a name. According to Google Maps, my apartment is technically part of Pill Hill, which got its name from all the hospitals and medical centers clustered on that ridge that runs between Telegraph and Broadway, just south of Mosswood Park. But since I live downhill and across the street from all the clinics and hospitals, I don't feel like part of Pill Hill. Pill Valley, maybe? I thought about trying to get people to call this area the Midwest, since it's roughly the middle western part of Oakland. But yeah, white people renaming neighborhoods hasn't worked out well in recent years. You can uh, ask the real estate marketing team behind Nobi 
about that if you can find them. Sometime around 2012, an association of local business owners decided to start calling this area Kono and even hung up banners along the light posts proclaiming this aspirational title. Kono is a splice of Koreatown and Northgate, two other neighborhood names that you don't hear used very often. Although I have heard the term Kimchi Alley used to describe the cluster of Korean joints a few blocks north of here. Anyway, the uh, faded Kono banners that they hung up almost 10 years ago now have never been taken down, even though the name never stuck. The busiest shop along this stretch is Oasis, a little market restaurant combo known for its fresh pita and succulent shawarma and sticky sweet baklava. The shop is uh, right next to a mosque, which is the hub of a community of Middle Eastern, mostly Yemeni people that live on the surrounding blocks around here. On Friday afternoons, I watch the families streaming past my window towards their weekly prayers at the mosque. Afterwards, they linger along the block in small groups, chatting in Arabic. The children laugh and chase each other up and down the sidewalk. Pigeons are everywhere, swooping fearlessly amongst the crowds to feast on the crumbs of flaky snacks that might have fallen. A lot of the men uh, in this community work as drivers. When I first moved here, there were always a lot of taxi cabs parked on the surrounding blocks, but that transitioned to cars with Uber and Lyft stickers in their windows in recent years. I, uh, I once met a next door neighbor because he happened to be driving the cab I jumped in at the Oakland airport. When he dropped me off, we left at the coincidence. America's rampant Islamophobia makes even less sense to me when I consider how nice it's been to live down the block from a mosque. If anything, all these really lovely, friendly Muslim families constantly passing under my window, chatting and hanging out, has made me feel safer. A few years ago, everyone in the neighborhood was talking about this wild turkey that somehow picked up the habit of brazenly strutting around on Telegraph Avenue with absolutely no regard for the many, many cars speeding up and down the street. Once, when uh, the turkey was blocking traffic, I ran downstairs to keep someone from running him over. The driver's annoyed honking turned to laughter as they saw me shooing the turkey onto the sidewalk in my pajama pants. My neighbors nicknamed the bird Hood Turkey, and they joke around that they were fattening him up for Thanksgiving. I'm not sure if they ended up eating him or not, but I haven't seen that bird in a long time. Mostly the birds I see every day are pigeons, crows, seagulls. Again, just totally fearless. Sometimes the River Nile corner store will scatter stale breadcrumbs on the sidewalk and I'll have to like whistle aggressively and like shuffle my feet to scare the pigeons out of my path as I'm walking through their flock. If there's food dropped in the actual street, seagulls will circle slightly above the cars until there's a break in the traffic. Then they'll swoop down on the french fry or burrito butt and snatch it and carry it off to a tree or a light post. I get the best view of the crows because their preferred nook for scarfing snacks is my neighbor's gutter, which is spitting distance from my desk. Although there's a window screen, so I don't actually spit out of my window. Anyway, I'm not sure if this is due to scarcity or just a competitive nature, but often a crow will land on the roof drop a snack into the gutter, and just as they're bending down to enjoy their little treat, another crow will crash the party and displace the original food gatherer from their intended meal. 
Actually, the only serious bird-on-bird violence that I've witnessed in my neighborhood is just burned into my memory. I was walking over Pill Hill one afternoon a couple years back, and I saw a hawk standing on top of a freshly killed pigeon in an alley between two buildings. Holding the dead bird in its talons, the hawk seemed alarmed by my presence, but it held its ground and just stared back at me with a silent glare that seemed to say, What are you looking at? Keep walking, buddy. I didn't actually see the other animal attack. I remember most vividly. I heard it. It sounded like a cat fighting either a possum or a raccoon. Both creatures were snarling like they'd been thrown into a blender. I thought it was a death duel, but when I ran outside to see the carnage, both animals had fled and there was no trail of blood. The only traces left from that brawl are the feral hissing shrieks implanted on my memory. Despite the urban setting, I've seen so many things out of my window that make me feel a connection to the natural world. Most of the trees on my block don't change colors in the autumn, but there's one that turns a fiery red. I didn't even notice it until I'd been living here for about five years, and now I look forward to seeing that vivid transformation every fall. The leaves practically glow. The Ohlone people who lived in this area for thousands of years before it was named Oakland used to burn the hills every year to promote the regeneration of grasses that provided edible seeds and grains. They didn't need to till the soil. Roasting it was enough. I've seen nearby plumes of smoke from a few relatively small fires over the years, but I've never witnessed anything like that massive 1991 firestorm that incinerated thousands of homes and ended 25 lives. Until this year, the closest I've gotten to experiencing that kind of devastation was seeing the apocalyptic orange skies during those big North Bay fires of 2017. On the first morning after that blaze in Santa Rosa, I assumed my neighbors had just been using their fire pit the previous night because my apartment reeked of charred wood. Everyone was coughing for days. Just thinking about it still makes my eyes itch. The last week or two have been pretty awful too from all the lightning strike fires, but somehow the air doesn't feel as unbreathable as it did back in 2017. Or maybe I'm just getting used to the smoke. Telegraph Avenue looks flat, but when the winter rains come, it's easy to tell which way is down. During the heaviest storms, wide, shallow rivers will form against the curbs on either side. The rushing water carries plastic bags, cigarette butts, and other garbage in the direction of Lake Merritt. But I should add, never cans or bottles. That lucrative litter is always quickly collected and secured by the neighborhood's many recyclers. Anyway, after one downpour, I saw a guy in fishing waders carrying one of those long-handled trash grabbers standing in Lake Merritt next to a storm drain. He had 87 hypodermic needles lined up along the pathway, which he told me he'd collected in less than an hour. I asked if he worked for the city, and he just laughed and told me that they won't even return his emails. I'm just a rogue environmentalist, he said. I've never seen snow outside my window, but I've seen a few quick bursts of hail 
and some really astonishing rainbows too. During that big solar eclipse, a couple years back, I wanted a better view, so I walked across the street to the parking garage and climbed six flights of stairs to the roof. About 20 or 30 hospital workers were already up there when I arrived on that foggy morning, and we watched, or tried to watch, that rare phenomenon together. But it was cloudy, so the eclipse wasn't very spectacular. Although, I've got to say, it felt better to be mildly disappointed in a group of people than all alone. After a few minutes, the hospital people went back to work, and I walked back across the street. Sometimes I'll hang out on the roof of that parking garage just to enjoy the view, even when there's not an astronomical event happening. I like to look back down across the street at my window, the window of my house, from that perspective up on the roof and just take comfort in how insignificant my little world appears. From up there, my living room is just one more window among thousands and thousands, glimmering and spreading out in all directions. The bay and the Golden Gate out along the horizon highlights the vastness of it all. It makes my problems feel small. Even the neutral gray color that my landlord painted the house adds to the inconspicuousness of the place I call, or called, home. For the first few years I lived here, the exterior of the house was a faded yellow and it was chipping pretty bad. I actually liked that better than the gray. More character. It feels like all the aesthetics of this neighborhood are moving in the direction of, like, Ikea furniture. One of the few exceptions to this boring trend is my neighbor's house, which is the color of a sweat-stained t-shirt. The old tenants kept a giant styrofoam skull on their front porch for years. Now there's some character. The Skull House used to co-host parties with the punk house next door to them on the other side. That uh, other punk house was called Telegraph Beach, despite the fact that there are no bodies of water in the vicinity of this block, and bands would cram into the living room of Telegraph Beach and turn it into a thriving, sweaty mass, while dozens of 20-somethings in ripped denim and unnaturally colored asymmetrical hair would mill around the front yard smoking. Telegraph Beach got evicted a few years back. After that, no more punk shows on this block. Just karaoke parties. I overheard one of those karaoke parties at my neighbor's house popping off a little while ago, so I went over to check it out, and I was immediately offered magic mushrooms and or a slice of cake that had just been decorated with a pentagram. It was a winter solstice party. I declined the psychedelics and the sweets, just wasn't in the right mood for either, and instead indulged myself by grabbing the microphone and belting out Blitzkrieg Bop by the Ramones. Hey, ho, let's go. The neighbors who threw that party all moved out not long after, and now the people that live there don't have karaoke parties. But they did tear out all the weeds from the front and backyards and planted a really nice little garden. They're cool. I like them a lot. But they told me a few weeks ago that they're fighting a big rent increase. So who knows how long they'll be there. I've seen a rotating cast of housemates go through that spot over the years. I remember the morning after the ghost ship fire. The people who lived there sat on the porch crying and smoking and hugging each other for hours. 
red-eyed friends gravitated from around the neighborhood to this impromptu wake throughout the day, shuffling towards the group of mourners already sitting on the steps and just collapsing among them, shattered. So much was lost that winter. I started making a list of all the notable things I've seen out my window. And I don't really know how to sum it up except to say, Oakland is a very unique place. Here's a sample. Again, these are all things that I've looked directly out my window and seen over the years. Marshawn Lynch, leading hundreds of young Raider fans in a group bicycle ride. There were dozens of scraper bikes, a few double-decker bikes, a ton of bike sound systems blasting hyphy music, hella people riding wheelie style, leaning back with the front end floating above the asphalt indefinitely. The wheels on Beast Mode's bike looked about as thick as car tires. Next, a cohort of about 20 recruits from Oakland Police Academy jogging in the street. Not the sidewalk, they were taking up a whole lane of the street with an escort that included several OPD motorcycles and vans. The short-haired trainees were chanting something militaristic. I think they were all men. Next, so, so many friends who wave and yell hi as they ride past my house. Next, a man who had four shopping carts tied together and was pulling them like a freight train overloaded with swelling bags of bottles and cans stacked higher than I could believe. Next, a giant silver penis that someone spray painted on my driveway. I think that might have been the result of a dispute involving my downstairs neighbors. Next, a man in a motorized wheelchair successfully evading a woman who was chasing him down the middle of the street. Next, a guy who was passed out while sitting up on a parked motorcycle. I have no idea how he didn't tip over. It was about 10 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Next, a guy with a small little tool who would go methodically from parking meter to parking meter, pulling out quarters. I saw him almost every day for years, but haven't seen him in a while. Next, I saw a minivan rear-end another car at the stoplight. The driver of the minivan jumped out, grabbed what appeared to be his kids out of the back seat, and ran away, just leaving the minivan there. I've seen a bunch of car crashes in Oakland, and yet I don't think I've ever seen an accident where both people stayed and like waited for the cops to come. One person always flees, with or without their car. Next, hunched over senior citizens walking to and from their medical appointments on Pill Hill at a pace that could be described as glacial. Sometimes they're relying on walkers with cut open tennis balls attached to the feet. I've watched so many of them shuffle by, inch by inch, wondering if I'll look like that someday. Will I even last that long? Do I even want to? Next, as I write these words, a red-tailed hawk is soaring above Pill Hill, hunting. One of the most infamous anti-war marches of the Vietnam era 
involved a large group of Berkeley students who planned to march down Telegraph Avenue from the Cal campus to the Army Recruitment Center near Oakland City Hall. Members of the Hells Angels pushed through a police line near the Oakland border and beat the protesters while screaming things like, America first. Most of the protest marches that I've seen along Telegraph Avenue happened during the first wave of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2014. Although, of course, there's been another big upsurge in recent months. During the first wave of Black Lives Matter, in the wake of the Ferguson uprising, long processions of people would snake through the streets of Oakland and sometimes Berkeley for hours and hours, every night for about a month to express outrage about police violence. Sometimes I joined these marches from their starting points. Other times I just waited for them to arrive on my block and I'd run downstairs and melt into the crowd. There's a California Highway Patrol headquarters about four blocks north of my house, so any time a march gets near, the police presence ramps up pretty significantly. I remember one night standing in a crowd of hundreds, surrounded by flashing blue and red lights, in a stalemate with the cops. I guess they were trying to stop protesters from getting up onto the 580 and blocking traffic. Nobody moved for a few minutes, except for some chanting and fist-waving. Then, suddenly, the crowd surged off the street towards the brushy, trash-strewn embankment behind Walgreens that leads up to the highway. This is just about two blocks east of the heart of the MacArthur maze, that tangled cloverleaf of asphalt that carries hundreds of thousands of cars above Oakland each day. Once you climb onto a highway as part of a protest march, you never know where you're going to end up. It could be just a few hundred yards away, or it could be in Santa Rita. The crowd rushed past me onto the highway, and the cops sped off to the next exit or wherever they anticipated the protesters would be marching. And I walked home to follow the rest of the march on Twitter. During the Occupy Oakland era, which roughly spanned fall and winter of 2011, 2012, Local TV news helicopters felt like a constant presence in the sky. Whenever a march or a showdown between protesters and riot cops started heating up, the choppers would swarm into the airspace above downtown and inevitably remain noisily chopping away for hours and hours. If it was a garbage night, I'd always remember to drag my bins into the backyard instead of leaving them on the curb before heading downtown. I inhaled tear gas a few times during those months, which certainly isn't fun, but at least it wears off after a few minutes. The fumes from all the burning plastic trash cans used as makeshift barricades probably has the potential for much worse long-term health consequences that I don't even want to think about. The Occupy-related marches only made it up to my stretch of telegraph, I think twice, as far as I can remember. Once, the police tried to kettle protesters at the corner of Telegraph and 29th, but people poured into the Commonwealth Bar for sanctuary, which the pub kindly offered, I've got to say. And another time, the march veered over Pill Hill onto Broadway, a stretch known as Auto Row, and it was a crazy night. People attacked car dealerships with hammers and spray paint and fire. 
the damage wasn't like catastrophic. It was mostly broken glass and you know some some dents and little burns here and there, but the real impact was psychological. Some of the spots that were vandalized didn't remove the anti-capitalist and anti-OPD graffiti for months. Plywood replaced the broken windows and the wooden boards were quickly filled with slogans ranging from, you know, stuff like, you can't stop us, to vengeful screeds against then-Mayor Gene Kwan. This was before a bunch of the newer developments started popping up. So there were also a bunch of vacant lots and empty buildings in the area. And walking through all that destruction and decay felt vaguely apocalyptic. Now there's a grocery store and a Starbucks and a Chipotle and all that, but yeah, even just like eight or nine years ago, it feels like a whole other era. But some things seemingly never change. That same stretch of telegraph got hit again at the beginning of this summer. The new Target got looted. The Mercedes dealership got smashed. Somebody drove a Honda SUV off the showroom floor and right through the dealer's giant play glass window. The next morning, Broadway was a trail of broken glass more than 20 blocks long. That was definitely the most intense night I'd ever seen around here. Before everything happened this summer, the last decent-sized protest I'd seen march past my window was around the time of uh, President Trump's inauguration in 2017. I heard later that some Molotov cocktails got thrown downtown, but when I saw it, the protest looked pretty subdued. Even the guy carrying the giant Soviet hammer and sickle flag seemed to wave it with a kind of just like resigned melancholy. I guess we were all still kind of shell-shocked that a reality TV con man and failed casino tycoon was now the most powerful man in the world. I don't want to say everybody, but I know a lot of people who love living in Oakland, despite the fact that they've been held up or had their house broken into, you know, bike locks cut, car windows smashed, etc. Fortunately, nothing too serious has ever happened to me personally. I'm tempted to suggest that the constant activity on Telegraph dissuades street crime, but I do know two people who have had guns stuck in their faces along a much busier stretch of Telegraph in Uptown. I've heard plenty of gunshots, but the nastiest violence I've ever actually witnessed from my window was the aftermath of a robbery. At about 2 a.m., I heard a woman screaming, and I ran down to check it out. My neighbors were already out on the sidewalk with the, with the lady. Between sobs, she explained that a man had punched her in the side of the face from behind and snatched her purse. That was about seven years ago. Most of the violence I've seen since then has been some kind of self-harm, such as a woman punching through a car window after her boyfriend had rolled it up. Once I saw a guy punch the side view mirror off a van and then throw it at the vehicle, his friends actually let him back in the van later after he calmed down a little bit. I saw a naked woman doing somersaults down the middle of Telegraph and then slam her head repeatedly into the street. She was picked up by an ambulance pretty, pretty quickly after that. I've seen several people who clearly had just escaped from one of the hospitals on Pill Hill. 
And I know that they had just come from a hospital because they were still wearing a hospital gown. I never know how to respond to situations like this. After seeing so many horrific videos of police officers killing people, especially people who are clearly mentally ill, calling 911 just doesn't feel safe. But not calling 911 doesn't feel safe either. I've called 911 once to report like a really sedated looking guy in a hospital gown doing low speed donuts on telegraph in a wheelchair. But I felt cowardly and guilty afterwards. I had run down to help push him out of the road, but I didn't know what to do after that other than call 911. I mean, yeah, it's easy to blame our government for failing to provide any kind of humane, comprehensive mental care system, but that doesn't help anything. Just like, you know, acknowledging the problem. I, I try to make a difference whenever I can, you know, like helping out with fundraisers or like, you know, doing little favors or whatever, but it, it never feels like enough. Once a guy named Bobby knocked on my door to ask if I'd pay him a few dollars to sweep the garbage out of the bushes in front of the doorway. I offered him a few dollars and told him, you know, just like, don't even worry about the garbage. But he said he wanted to earn the money. So I let him borrow the broom for a few minutes. And after that, he started coming back almost every day and night to see if I had any work for him. So we reached an agreement that my roommates and I would pay Bobby $15 to sweep the bushes once a week. Over the years that I knew Bobby, I saw him go through a couple ups and downs. Sometimes he'd be clean shaven, wearing new clothes, excited to talk about some part-time job he'd just gotten or just happy to hang out and chat. Other times he'd be twitchy and agitated or he'd have like dried blood on him or he'd be like really sad. Like the time that he crashed uh, a van of a church group that had taken him in. Eventually, Bobby moved out to Stockton to live in a shed behind his son's house. Sometimes he still stops by when he's back in Oakland. It wasn't like this when I first moved to Telegraph, but for the last few years, there are several large encampments of homeless people within blocks of my place. And at the same time, there are several large, brand new residential developments where rents start at about two grand for like a shoebox and then go up pretty sharply from there. There's more of these buildings currently under construction. The encampments underneath the overpasses have evolved from tents to more permanent looking structures. Meanwhile, the new residential developments are festooned with security cameras galore and guarded 24-7 by security guys. It feels like this neighborhood is simultaneously accelerating towards opposite ends of the socioeconomic spectrum. And being in the middle of all that is disorienting. Right now, in 2020, everything feels very tenuous and surreal. These new buildings a lot of them have ground floors that are designed for retail and restaurants, which may or may not ever arrive. Some of them are boarded up and 
Yeah, they could be that way for a long time. The people who are moving into those buildings. The newcomers to Telegraph. This little stretch of Oakland that used to be my neighborhood and won't be for much longer. I wonder what they'll see on Telegraph when they look down on the street in a year or a decade from now. Maybe they'll see a man walking alone. Maybe it'll be me. But they probably won't even notice because a lot of people go up and down Telegraph and they have been for a long time. They've been doing it before I got here and they'll be doing it after I'm gone. Thanks for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. For this episode, I want to thank the people who I've shared a wonderful home with for the past decade. My wife, Elizabeth, and my friend, T.L. Simons. I love you both, and I'll miss what we had here. This apartment is empty now, but hopefully it'll be filled again soon with another family, and hopefully they'll love living here as much as we did.